When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome back to the Love Tennis Podcast with me, James Gray of the iNewspaper and 9news.co.uk. As always, I've got George Belshaw with me, phoning in from another part of London. And we've got Calvin Beton, who is away in Italy on assignment. So we apologise in advance for any delay on the line or any uh, sound quality issues. Calling Calvin, how are you? Buonasera. Uh, I don't know. I uh, see, see, see. <laughs> <laughs> Superb. Uh, the uh, the yeah. consummate linguist. Uh, are you all right? Uh, tell me, how is Italy? Um, yeah, it's okay. I got here today and um, the hotel is uh, basic and the venue <laughs> is basic. Um, I asked the lady if I could get takeaway and she said, you can get a pizza, but only a margarita. And I said, is it a good margarita? And she said, no. <laughs> so that was, uh, was my options for lunch, for dinner L- living the dream I believe <laughs> and I could jo- confirm it it wasn't very good <laughs> yeah. uh, George talk, me, talk to me about your culinary options this evening I, I'm currently sort of slyly eating a ramen that my girlfriend's kindly made it was a caramelised onion ramen uh, mm. from Mira Soda okay. recipe so in America, like ramen is what students eat. Like it's like pot noodle, right? Like it, it's just sort of like a byword for cheap, easy food. But here it's become like sort of gourmet Eastern food. I, I had a, a a frozen lasagna, uh, homemade, admittedly, and then frozen and then reheated. So and actually, I kind of just... feel like I'm winning tonight. Really, uh, mm, close. about myself. Close. Ellen has worked very hard on this, so I, I would have to back her quarter quite hard. Probably. Uh, I mean, else. my partner also worked very hard on lasagna, which I then came home from a stag do and didn't want to eat absolutely anything and refused to eat it, so she had to freeze it. Um, so I also feel, well, we might have to have a fight. We'll have a taste test, George. There you go. We'll have some sort of master chef who put our partners up against each other. Um, I'll stop waffling on because we've got loads of tennis to talk about and 
there's a development in the football because Wales have a penalty, but that's football. And I'm sure if you're in any country that has a team in the World Cup at the moment, you're hearing more than enough about that. Uh, we're going to talk about Novak Djokovic because he's won the ATP finals again. Um, we'll assess quite what that means for his legacy and what we think of his year overall. Casper um, Ruud, of course, made the final and we'll talk about how stealthily he has been working his way up the game over the last two seasons to really be one of the most consistent players on tour. We'll talk about a tremendous row between Stefano Tsitsipas and Andre Rublev. And we'll also talk a bit about gambling in tennis um, after some quite serious revelations in The Guardian this week. But there is only one place and one man with whom we can start. It is Novak Djokovic. He ruled the roost at the ATP Finals. He was unbeaten in his five matches. He dropped just one set, and that was to Daniil Medvedev in a very odd match, I should say. He beat Kasparu 7-5-6-3 in the final. He would practically be world number one again, uh, were there points for Wimbledon. I think he would have exactly the same number as Carlos Alcaraz of Wimbledon encountered. He's the oldest man to win the ATP finals at the age of 35 and five months. And he's now equaled Roger Federer on six titles. Uh, George, is there any chance that he doesn't surpass Roger and pick up yet another of the great man's records? Sorry, what was the record you just said? I completely missed that. It's Roger Federer's record of six ATP finals. Oh, of the finals ATP finals. finals. Sorry, excuse me. Sorry. I thought you said Australian Opens. I thought he was already past that. Um... No, I think it's possible he doesn't win it. I mean, like, he, he, he seems to have been not as engaged at this tournament for a while. I think the one thing you say about Novak's season this season is most things he's played since the clay, he's been very, very engaged in. And it's kind of felt like, well, because he's not had so many big events this year and he's got so good at peaking at top, top events that maybe has he's had a little more um, mental energy to spare, perhaps. Um you know, I think in previous years he might not have turned up as serious as this. I'm not saying this isn't a big event, but it's just it hasn't seemed like a top motivation for him over the last few years. But yeah, I mean, look, he he's had a, a pretty incredible year again. We've said this a few times the last few weeks. He's had a pretty incredible year considering the events he's missed and what he's still achieved this season. And, you know, for him to win this unbeaten, pull level on Alcaraz if you count the Wimbledon points, which I know we, we, is, is still a technicality, but given he couldn't play the US and Australian Open to miss 4,000 points off them, plus 2,000 off Wimbledon, which he definitely did win, I still believe he would have won the Australian Open had he been able to go and win that. You know, I, I still just can't look past this guy's total world number one. And I don't think he actually played that well this week. Like I watched a lot of his matches and he kind of was going through the motions. He was complaining a little bit, being ill at times. Um, but he just has that ability to raise his level. And that was the case in the final against Rude. First set, really not quite engaged. But kind of the midway through the second set, after having pinched the first, he can just he can just turn it on to such a degree that no one else really can. And his, his lower level is still so, so good. But when he hits those heights, I still think he's just comfortably the best player in the world. And yeah, he, he he's my guy to beat next year. I've said it time and time again. I still think it's very possible he can go and win four slams next year. It's funny you say that, George, because actually I posted something on Twitter after he won it and said that there really isn't a more deserving champion of tennis in 2022 because he, he has, whenever he's played, he's dominated it. And as you say, that is remarkable for someone who couldn't play 
two of the Grand Slam tournaments. And lots of people were saying, well, you know, what kind of indictment is this of of the generation around him? And I, I kind of struggle. Like, Calvin, you always talk about Djokovic as the greatest match player of all time. And I do wonder whether that means that as he gets older, his... His slowdown will be slower, if that makes any sense. You know, he will he will not be diminished so much by age because he has such an advantage in in his mental and tactical game. Um, yeah, that's a fair point. Yeah, but he also his his two greatest assets are his match playability and his movement, and he, it will affect his movement. You can't mm. be moving at thirty eight like you did when you were twenty four. That's impossible. So, on one side, yeah, one of his greatest assets is match play in his brain, and he won't lose that. But he he will lose some athleticism, I would think. I, I was just wondering there when when you said, is there any chance that he doesn't pass Federer? I mean, there's a good chance he does, but I don't think it's far from guaranteed. He, he's never he's, he, the the ATP Finals as a rule has some weird results anyway, has some strange winners, um, and he's as George said, he's never. Um, entirely committed to it some of the times but the main thing I think even throughout this whole indoor season he's really benefited from and no one's mentioned it he's really benefited from Zverev not being around because in three sets in best of three especially on indoors Zverev has really had his number uh, in the last couple of years and he's the one player who I think I think he probably still fancies himself in best of five outdoors on slow hard courts but I think in best of three on anything other than grass, I don't think he fancies Zverev at all. I think I think best of three as a as a whole as a format for Novak is going to be increasingly a problem. I think players will get the better of him, not just Zverev, and we, we're seeing that more and more. Um, you know, even Holger Rune can kind of get there. He he, we said this time and time again. I I just think he'll have a hold still on best of five from this ability to manage matches and the best of five just buys him time buys him that experience buys him that ability to dip in and out and almost kind of conserve his energy and you know that that is harder to do as calvin says like against a guy like zverev where on an indoor hard court where he can get at you with his big serve big forehand keep on kind of keep on top of you um so yeah I, you know it's definitely not a guarantee but kind of on the movement point i mean he, I, you do just watch this guy sometimes at the 35 and think bloody hell it it is exceptional. I, I've not, I've genuinely not seen a 35-year-old in any sport move like Djokovic is moving now. And I'm not saying he's moving as quickly, but it's that combination of anticipation, still that remarkable flexibility, and he's still pretty bloody quick as well. I mean, he, he is a super, super, super athlete. You know, Federer, in his later years, I think we all kind of accepted there was a little bit of adaptation and a lot of it was still built on you know he was anticipating things but the Federer would leave a lot of shots I kind of felt you know he would accept points he wasn't going to win he kept kind you know he has that ability to quick strike tennis now Djokovic is still playing pretty similarly in the way we say Murray kind of can't play now and I know Murray's been through a lot more kind of physically exerting surgeries or whatever but I, I still think either way Djokovic the way he's playing now is pretty Pretty darn incredible at 35. Um, yeah, I mean, I think you said there, George, that you don't think you've seen it at 35 in any other sport. Um, LeBron James is 37, and anybody <laughs> who watches NBA will tell you that he hasn't lost any of his athleticism, which is freakish. 
In fact, he's probably over the last three or four years, he's probably got bigger and stronger and maintained the speed that he always had. And Tom Brady, to be fair, was still winning Super Bowls at 41. I think the difference for me, and I probably could have said this a little bit clearer, is like, I think actually mu- sports like where you're adding muscle and power, it's, it's still okay to do it at 37. I think it's the dexterity of Djokovic that amazes me, like that complete flexibility, the kind of side-to-side movement that I, I, I've not really seen. And I know he's kind of pushed the boundaries anyway, regardless of what age he is, you know, in terms of that unique flexibility, ability to kind of go side to side. But to still be able to do that, for me, like I kind of freak out slightly that when he kind of goes over his ankles still at 35, for example, you know, it's pretty pretty mad stuff to think he's just not going to snap at some point. I think on what you're kind of alluding to there, George, the most remarkable thing is that he's his strengths often are still young man things. Like I, I talked about the mental game and the tactical game. But yeah, the flexibility is like flexibility is something that you associate specifically with younger players. Like it's something that you lose, that we all lose as time goes on, as we get older and, and frankly less fit. Um, so that that definitely makes it makes it more remarkable. I think it's also, and you mentioned Murray there, it, it's kind of brought into sharp focus by what Murray and Federer and Nadal have been through, kind of in a similar age bracket. I know Murray's actually a bit younger than him and but because of what they went through in terms of physical slowdown and injury and you know slower recovery from injury i think it brings it into sharper focus exactly what novak is doing and and quite how impressive it is that he he has avoided injury and, and i actually think to be fair he's also had like some quite convenient like breaks from the game like i don't know whether he would have won and this is massive hypothetical but I don't know whether he would have won the ATP World Tour Finals had he not had a month and a half off in the middle of the season. Like it's what we always talk about the ATP World Tour Finals is they throw up weird results because they're right at the end of the season and players are hanging out their backside. And you know, so Grigor Dimitrov wins it sometimes, and you know, Sitsipas has won it, and Zverev has won it, and Medvedev has won it, and there's no real consistency to who goes out and wins it. So, and I think Djokovic. He would probably say it himself that in some ways that that mental break as well as a physical break, you know, we all know how much Australia kind of put him through the ringer uh, and he's talked about that. And I do think that that's been a bit of an advantage. Um, Speaking of physical decay, uh, Rafa Nadal had a very poor week um, where he lost his first two matches in straight sets to Taylor Fritz and Felix Auger-Alia Seam. He then gritted his way to a, a win over Kasper Ruud, which was actually quite impressive. George, how how much, if if anything, do we read into Rafa Nadal's performances this week? I mean, it, it's hard to say for a number of reasons. I mean, before that final win, he was on a four-match losing streak, which I, I think I'm right in saying has only happened twice in his career. ATP he hasn't level. won 30 he hasn't lost four matches in a row for 13 years yeah so you know th- this isn't something that happens particularly often i wouldn't necessarily say it's panic stations for nadal i i don't think indoor hard suits him as much as the other surfaces we've said that before you know okay we, we've kind of given him the caveat over the years of okay he's just not been fit around this time of year but his results as well do kind of speak to the fact that this isn't his strongest surface. 
there is the kind of factor of how match fit he is, how sharp he is. I, I still think there's something to be said for actually getting a few matches under his belt at the end of the season. But you know, we can't we can't escape this. And we've said this for years and years and years and years about Nadal that there will be a point where he inevitably does decline. And I I can't say with certainty this will be the time because every other time it's been the case that he suddenly bounces back. And the guy has still won two Grand Slams this year, but second half of the season's not been where he'd have liked it to be. We know he had a lot of physical issues at the French Open. If you take the last six months in isolation, you're back in that stage where you're like, oh, crikey, I'm a bit worried about Nadal. And throwing the fact he's now become a father, you don't know how that's going to change the mentality, you know, those kind of wider life points. You have to start thinking, oh, let's put it this way. He's not going to win the Australian Open this year. I'd, I'd, I'd put a lot of money on that if Novak is 100% going, which I believe we've had confirmed now. Um you know, he he comes in for me as like fourth, fifth favorite at best for that, um, and I wouldn't back him against Novak on a hard court for the rest of his career, frankly. Uh, yes, uh, I did mean to mention that in the news section at the top. Actually, Novak Djokovic will be at the Australian Open after his uh, visa ban, uh, which was automatically applied, having been deported. Uh, that was overturned by the new government in Australia. Um, Craig Tiley had said, I know Novak wants to come play and get back competing. It's where he's had the best success. And he will, in fact, be back in Australia after that decision was overturned. And, uh, George, I'm not sure many people will take up on your take you up on your bet that Rafa Nadal won't win the Australian Open if he is there. Um, I want to read you what, what Nadal said. I think it was after the first defeat, which was obviously the first match back. He said, I don't think I forget how to play tennis, how to be strong enough mentally. I just need to recover these positive feelings and all this confidence and this strong mentality that I need to be at the level I want to be and I don't know if I'm going to reach that level again but what I don't have any doubt that I'm going to die for it um a pretty strong word to say the least Calvin I I wonder if maybe this is just how Nadal sort of talks publicly that he says oh I don't know if I'm going to do it but I'm going to try to me that sounded a little bit different from what we're used to from him Um, maybe up until a couple of years ago, but then, you know, even going into the Australian Open this year, he was saying he didn't know whether he was going to retire. Mm. Like there was that sort of thing going around that he told Federer, that Federer said that he'd spoke to him a couple of weeks before and he said he didn't know whether he played his last tennis match. Mm. Um, and then he's going to make, the, uh, he's going to win it. He <laughs> made the final, he ended up winning the final. Yeah. So I think he is, you know, uh, I, I th- actually think he's been pretty honest. Uh, and I think, you know, I think a lot of these athletes sometimes can put a brave face on and try and talk up their chances. But I think Nadal, over the last couple of years, has been straight up with us in terms of his fitness. And he's always said, I don't know whether I'm going to be able to make it and that mm. kind of thing. I think also the issues he's been dealing with, like, he gets a lot. I mean, Twitter is a really bad microscope to, through which to view tennis. But. Um, he gets a lot of abuse on Twitter for like, you know, saying, oh, I'm injured and then going out and playing five sets and, you know, as as though he's lying about his injuries and this, that and the other. And I actually think the types of injuries he's been dealing with, he often hasn't known. Like this foot thing is so weird and he's now functioning, you know, in such a weird way because he's had this, you know, nerve basically burnt um, that he probably doesn't know. And I don't think it's reasonable to assume that He's lying about his physical state. Um, but nevertheless, to come back as rusty as he did, 
in those two matches against, okay, Fritz and Augereli seem in fairness have been really good form at the end of the season. And that's a bit of a nightmare for someone, you know, a guy in his mid-30s who's just had a kid coming back off a pretty slow autumn. But nevertheless, it's worrying results, I think, Callum. Yeah, I think, I guess when you say when you say that, though, the thing is he's not always been particularly transparent about his injuries in the majority of his career. Yeah, yeah. But like he's always been pretty like, you know, what, what have you been out with six months for Rafa? It's leg injury <laughs> and things like that, or uh, arm you know, just in terms of what, what, what's been injured arm and things like that. So, you know, he's always been very, very secretive about any injuries. Um, and so now that's why I find it quite refreshing that he has been quite straight up and, and always ne- never given any details in his career as to when he'd be back. He just He's just come back. And as I've alluded to many times on the pod, he's the only player in any sport ever that just comes back and just starts winning things from being out for four months injured. I mean... Your comment earlier, James, around the kind of responses you were getting to Djokovic winning this sort of event. I mean, for me now, I'm looking at Nadal on a hard court and I'm thinking we're getting to the stage where I still think it's a fairly poor result, actually, for kind of wannabe top, top players now to be losing to him. And I I felt that at the Australian Open. I was pretty vocal about that. That was a pretty poor result from Medvedev in my perspective. He totally had that match in his hand and kind of collapsed. Um, I don't think many, many people will kind of dispute that, but... You know, it, it mildly encourages me to see Ogier Aliassime and Fritz come out there and beat him comfortably on an indoor, indoor hardcore. You know, they should be. They've got good serves. They have big all-action games, and this guy's kind of out of form. And I, I, yeah, I still think he'll be a threat on the clay and we'll aim to kind of peak for that. And we'll have to see what happens in the off-season. But I, I think we're, we're getting to that stage where I, I want to be going into matches think, on hard courts thinking... Yeah, Alcaraz is going to kill Nadal here, or Medvedev is going to beat Nadal. Zverev, if fit, should beat him. Even Sissipas, and I know Sissipas maybe isn't there, but that's someone as well you <clears throat> want to feel should be able to beat Nadal at this stage. So, I'd like to, I'd like to be in a in a mental stage where I think Nadal's kind of eighth favourite to win the Australian Open in terms of this generation, and it probably speaks volumes that I still think he's fourth. Uh, yeah, sorry, I'm getting slightly distracted because I just thought Gareth Bale was going to score from about 55 yards, but uh, that's not happened. It's the 10th minute of stoppage time as well, which is just ridiculous because the England game had 24 minutes of stoppage time. They're dragging uh, football games as long as tennis matches at this tournament. It's... I was going to say, one of the great things about football is you're supposed to know when the match finishes, and it should have finished about 15 minutes ago, so I wouldn't be distracted by it. But Well, anyway. without, without wishing to get too much into football, um, one of my main gripes with football is not playing enough at a time, so I'm more than happy about it. Yeah, uh, yeah spot spot the Man United fan there, I suspect. Well, it's, <laughs> it's, it's true. Enough. <laughs> like the, the one thing that Newcastle seem to have spent most money on uh, is new watches for their referees. <laughs> uh, yes, quite. Um, I want to talk about Casper Ruud as well because, uh, again, it's something I put on Twitter and got lots of kind of response to, and it, it got me thinking. Um, I just wanted to—I wanted to kind of break down or maybe summarize the last two years or two seasons, I should say, Casper Ruud's career. In that time, he's made two Grand Slam finals, got within one victory of making world number one. He's been at least the quarterfinals of eight different Masters events. He's won eight titles. He's gone from 27 in the world to three in the world. 
Uh, and he's also made an ATP World Tour final, semi-final, and now a final. Now, George, you've written in the show notes that the final highlighted his limitations. I'd argue those statistics show that he is, however limited you think he might be, he might be the most consistent guy outside of the, the big guys. Yeah, I think my, my comment about highlighting his limitations shows like what his problem is in terms of winning the top, top events. I mean, Novak was pretty ruthless in that second set of really exploiting that backhand. You know, Rude's serve has come on leaps and bounds this year. It's a really, really fantastic shot now. His forehand's always been big. The backhand is not, but, you know, when you've got a big serve and a big forehand, you can kind of get on top of points. But I, I, I genuinely think he's done so fantastically well over the last 18 months that he is yeah going well and well above beyond what he should be able to do in a field of players who have far fewer limitations than him um and i think we have to we have to give him some mental credit as much as anything you know we we look at what's missing from some of the top guys like if you look at sissipas compared to rude there's no reason stefano sissipas shouldn't be playing for um you know, world number one this year in terms of consistency and given Novak hasn't been able to play so much, you know, this has been a year where someone like that should have had a chance to go to world number one, but he hasn't. And Casper Ruud has just turned up, slugged it out. But I think, and I don't, I don't think any of us will disagree with this. I still just wouldn't back him in a big, big match against a big, big player because he, he will get found out against them because that backhand is a big weakness. Yeah, Calvin, how limited do you think his game is? Um, I think it's not It's not limited. It is limited, but I don't think that's the problem. The problem is a, a mate of mine who's also a journalist but isn't one of you two um, messaged me yesterday because <laughs> I think he was writing an article on it or doing some live blogging on it maybe, and he asked me what I thought of the match. And I said that the problem Rude has is that he's basically a... Poundland version of Djokovic in that they basically their basic style of play is exactly the same and Djokovic there's not a single thing that Rude does better than Djokovic or as good as Djokovic on any on any wing so I think he probably is look as we are now I'd say I think he's overranked at three um, if I'm honest I, I think I'd still have the best four players in the world when everyone's fit as being Djokovic Alcaraz Medvedev and Zverev um, Nadal, you'll be uh, attracting some uh, It's comments. hard. To, no, listen, I'll, I'll put an asterisk next to Nadal because it, it's just fitness-wise, isn't it? If you tell me that Nadal's fully fit, then absolutely. Uh, he's he's probably still... You'd probably still have him as three um, and knock the other two down. And and on that basis, let's say that... Let's include Nadal in that then, fair enough. Let's assume he's going to be fit around the Australian Open and then for the, for the rest of next year. Um I, I don't see which of those players he's ever beating in, in a match of any importance. I don't see how he's going to... If, if Zverev comes back to, to fitness, if Zverev comes back to the level that he was at the French Open this year and had been for the year up until then, um, Medvedev, although he's had, he's had a pretty bad year, I still think, again, he does everything that Rude does, but better. Um, Nadal... Alcaraz, Djokovic. I just don't see how. I don't think he'd ever beat any of them, and that's a problem he's got. But I think he probably is solid enough to clean up all the rest, unless they're playing their nine out of ten or better game. I think this kind of touches on quite an existential point of 
the men's tennis landscape now is like how open is it going to be because if rude if it, it stays as open this year when you bear in mind Djokovic has missed two slams Medvedev's missed a large chunk of the season Nadal's missed a large chunk of the season you know Alcaraz has struggled with injury in the back end of the year if all these guys and bear in mind Djokovic and Nadal are winding down are going to keep missing big chunks of the season and Casper Ruud will be one of those guys who happily mops up and turns up and cleans up the question is is how much are the players kind of keep developing around him you know I I honestly think people like Jack Draper can pass Rude in terms of the game he's got and potential of going higher in the game. I think Felix Auger Aliassim should be a stronger player yeah, than yeah. Rude in the long yeah. run. It's just this question of is Casper Rude gonna hit the perfect time of his career where he's being uber uber consistent in the time where men's tennis is probably at its most volatile in you know, since that era just before Federer came on the scene. The thing is, I think, and, and I have a theory on on players who are ranked sort of six to uh, ten or five to ten at any one time in tennis. They fall into one of two categories. They fall into the guys who will never lose to players they shouldn't, and they can't beat the guys who are in the top four, or they're the they're the players who will lose to occasionally lose to guys who are ranked sixty in the world. But on their day, they can definitely be any of the top players, any anybody in the world. And Rude's definitely in the former of those categories, I think. But if you look at any any players who are in that, I'd say I'd say City Pass is the opposite. City Pass can beat anybody if he plays his best game, but he can also, as we've seen at the US Open, he can lose to anybody. Um, Felix Auger Aliassim absolutely in the same category. Rublev is in the same category as Rude, I'd say. Mm. Uh, and, you know, we do often criticise in the WTA, especially because of the nature of women's tennis, these players for not being consistent enough and not coming out and, you know, winning those games consistently. So it, by the same token, we probably should say, well, you know, this is a job that someone has to do. And in order to get into the top 10, you've got to do it. And then that should ladder you up. I, th- I think we had the conversation around the US Open, like who's more likely to win a slam, Casper Ruud or... Um... Ons Jabour and my answer at the time was Casper Ruud just because I don't necessarily see such the dominating figure in men's tennis as good as Alcaraz is as eager Sviantec you know that's an absolute nightmare match Ruud at the minute is kind of enjoying I don't I hate saying the luck of the draw because you still have to beat who's in front of you and you know the draw is the draw there's nothing you can do about that but you know I, I do think he'll Keep you know he's, this guy's been to two Grand Slam finals. You, know, you, you can't say that's a, a bad achievement. That's as I think Medvedev's only been, how many's he been to two, three, three now I think three. You know that's that's still pretty good numbers from Rude to be chalking that up. So yeah, look, it, it, it's good to have a consistent guy going. Whether I think he'll actually win a Slam or not, I, I certainly wouldn't be putting any great money on it, but. If he keeps putting himself in positions, one of these times, one of these guys won't get there because we've said it time and time again, but you know, Djokovic particularly can't keep going forever. We hope, anyway. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't know how to respond to that that random we hope, George, but yes, sure. <laughs> um, I'm going to throw something out there if I can just verify this stat because it, it was sitting in my head and I'm pretty sure it's right. But do you know how many top 20 players... Casper Ruud has beaten at Grand Slams lifetime. Mm, probably not that many. I, I'd probably say it's under five. It's, so about it, 
three. It's two. Mm. He beat Hubert Hercatch in the last 16 at Roland Garros this year, and he beat Matteo Berrettini in the quarterfinals of US yeah. Open this year. Which, I mean, I'm surprised at. Just, I mean, I, I thought that might be the case, just glancing at his record. But it does kind of sum up what Calvin was saying, I think, that, you know, he puts away the guys he's supposed to put away. And I'm not saying that he's not going to change and evolve and, you know, we talk about players moving up the ladder. He could, but it, it sort of sums up where he is right now. I just, just say, by the way, I mean, he actually played some pretty good tennis in both his Grand Slam finals as well. I don't think it's like a mental issue with Kasparud where I'm thinking he can't win big matches because he can't get into the right mindset. I think his mindset's pretty good and generally. Oh, well, hang on. No, the, the, the French Open final, absolutely not. Like, he, 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 played, he, the he, set walked, was good. he walked out in that final beaten. Like, I have no doubt about that. I thought he played some good stuff in that where he took it to Nadal with his four. I don't look, I'm not saying he was perfect, he's still going to be some nerves, but I'm just, I don't think it's just a mentality issue that's stopping him. I think it's a genuine tennis limitation that will stop him against the very best guys. I think the problem he has in those tournaments is that the best players in the world are all of that type. He's not from a different era away. Say you had a guy who was like. You don't get them anymore, really. But say you had a guy who was like Pete Sampras or um, some sort of serve volley who was still at the top of the game, one of the top three or four players. You could see a world where they have a stinker and they don't make first serves and Rude plays out of his skin where he can beat them. The problem is, is all the guys above him all kind of play the same way as him and they're just better at it. And, and so you don't see a way that he's going to take down Alcaraz or Djokovic or Medvedev or even Tsitsipas, uh, not Tsitsipas, um, Zverev on a doubt. I, I do, I do. Just to defend Rude slightly, there is a bit of a risk. We're kind of saying this guy has no weapons and no quality at all. You know, there were times, particularly in that first set, where he had no back against the ropes. You know, he does have a a really big booming forehand and can get on top of people. And you know, there was there was one moment I, th- I can't actually remember if it was end of. Second set will start. I think it was end of first set, um, where Rude thought he'd kind of served to get to forty thirty. No, I couldn't get there. Any challenge, and it was just out. But he had such a long wait for a second serve, and it just just true to turn out to be quite a pivotal moment in that game where he got broken. Um, you know, there were kind of small margins in that matches, and then Novak suddenly kind of picked up some confidence and started playing beyond himself. But the, Rude does have quality I, I don't think we should diminish that it's just as calvin says if you put rude playing a seven out of ten match against anyone in the top five he's going to lose that 9.9 times out of 10 but i'd still think there is a, a potential growth where rude can get himself up to a nine out of ten against one of those guys and and can win and I, I saw bits of that you know i know you guys are saying he didn't play that well against Nadal, but there were there were points in that match at the french open where he did play really well he he dominated off that forehand, and actually, the shots he were miss he was missing were okay. You might say nerves, but it, the, the build up into those points wasn't wasn't putting me off thinking this guy can actually get on top of these guys in the future. So, I think there's there's reason to be optimistic for Casper Rude fans, even if it sounds like we're slightly writing him off forevermore. Uh, when I mentioned this on Twitter, Calvin, someone said to me. He reminds me of Mats Volander, and I was wholly unqualified to to kind of answer whether that was true or not. Um, I mean, I don't remember Mats Volander, the player. You may just. 
Uh, I mean, if he's talking about game style, yeah, Verlander was a consistent baseliner, mm. but Rude's nowhere near as good as Verlander was. Yeah, I mean, Verlander was world number one, and no, nah, but I mean, he won't turn out to be. Verlander was world number one and multiple Grand Slam winner. Mm. Um, yeah, no, not in the same league. I'd say he's more. Uh, if you're looking for, in terms of style and um, similarity, he's probably somewhere between. Michael Chang and Sergey Bruguera. If you're looking for a a sort of late '80s, early '90s type of player, I still think he's most likely his best surface is still clay. But Chang Chang strangely won a Slam when he was I can't remember, 16 or 17. 17. Um, 17. But then you know, if you you said then when somebody wins a Slam at 17, you think this guy's going to win multiple, and he never won another. He made a couple of other finals, but wasn't competitive in them. So, post Slam winning Chang, I would say was the closest to um, to Rude. Yeah, I was going to say when you said Chang, it sounded like Rude's already missed the boat in terms of his opportunities. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's too late. It's a free, that was one of those freak ones though. It happens in tennis where both Lendl and Edberg serious serious match players and two players with balls of steel um absolutely choked and crumbled under pressure against michael chan um so just a freak tournament really sounds like a tournament we might have to do a, a special on uh, one day it's time for today's lucky land horoscope with victoria cash life's gotten mundane so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to lucky land you know what they say your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandslots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandslots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Uh, now, I want to move on because we have to talk about... The Sitsipas Rublev row, which might be my favourite thing from the the week. Uh, I appreciate there was lots of great tennis played, um, but <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, forget the tennis. Who cares? Um, <laughs> St- Stefanos Sitsipas and uh, Andre Rublev uh, d- dueling it out uh, in to Chinchurin in the group stages. Rublev came from a set down to win three six six three six two, which. Uh, not sit to pass out because it was his second defeat of the week. Now, needless to say, Stefan Sitsipas wasn't very impressed with himself. Uh, I'm going to read you what he said. This is the best way to do it, really. I didn't really feel threatened. I just wanted to try something new, see if it might work in the third set. Throw him off a little bit. 
I had a long game towards the end where I kept trying new things. I can say things were coming off the racket pretty good from his side. It's a shame. I feel like the better player. I felt I could do more with the ball today. I felt I could just be much more creative. I don't even have to say that. I think it's quite obvious. But yeah, he prevailed with the few tools that he has. He was able to really take advantage of them and win today. Uh, this was put to Andre Rublev in his press conference, albeit it took about eight goes because <laughs> he couldn't really understand what the, the into the um, questioner was saying. The moderator had to get involved and like uh, sort of explain what he said. And Rublev eventually worked it out and says, I don't know if I have few tools or not. If we go shot by shot, I think his backhand is better than mine. His forehand is not better than mine. The speed serve is not better than mine. He's faster. Uh, he plays much better than it. If we go for the best shot, I don't think... Obviously, he's a better player because he's higher ranked. He's achieved better results, it's obvious, no doubt. But I don't think that I beat him because of few tools. If you take our match, every match with tough battles. Uh, we always have tough matches. Only one final in Monte Carlo that he played really well and destroyed me quite easily. But the rest were always tough matches. Um, Calvin, I feel like Stefan Sitsipas and you are singing from the same hymn sheet for the first time in history. Uh... In what way? <laughs> well, in that Stefano Sitsipas says Andre Rublev has very few tools available to him. And yeah, don't... you don't come out saying it. I mean, I, I think on, <laughs> on, on, on the evidence of the last couple of days, I think Andre Rublev probably makes better music than Stefano Sitsipas. <laughs> <laughs> um, having never heard anything that any music that Andre Rublev has ever made, but going by, can't be much worse. Um, I, I thought it was pathetic from Sitsipas. Really, really pathetic. Um, and I thought Rublev's response was was bang on. He was is miss you know he was absolutely miffed by it at the start. Didn't understand what I think it wasn't even the English that he didn't understand. I think he thought he was mishearing it. Like how can somebody be talking such utter tongue after a match? <laughs> um, but it was just not. I mean, it was just so childish. It was like the sort of thing that you get like tennis parents saying at under twelves tournaments, like. Like, oh, but my son would have beat him. He was just hacking. He was just putting the ball up. You know, I thought the next comment from Caesar Pass was going to be, but a lot of the games went to juice. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it was just absolute no. It, you know, I, I'm joking about it, but it really was pathetic from an actual, from a top-class athlete. It, it, and, and it continues this theme of City Pass just coming across like a really spoiled child all the time. Like he has no level of emotional intelligence or any level of maturity even. And what I'd say on, on Rubla, you know, what if we're going to sort of mildly take it seriously, which I don't agree with, that we should, he, he won the tennis match. There's that, you know, that's just nonsense, is that it doesn't matter what... what Andre Rublev had the tools to beat Stefanos Tsitsipas on the day when they played. And mm. they're the only tools that you need to bring. Mm. Like, if, if you're looking to... If somebody hires a painter and decorator, you don't have a go at them because they don't bring their car mechanic tools. You do what you do what's needed. You, you bring the tools what's needed on the day, don't you? Like why would why he's winning the match? Why would he start serve volleying and drop shotting? Like you, you know, in, in tennis terms, he just wouldn't need to, would you? Why would he? Why would he start hitting some slices and some? You know, why would he start doing anything different? He's winning the match. I, I was when I saw these comments, I was starting to do a kind of a shot by shot breakdown of them and kind of take it one by one. I mean, I probably have Rublev's backhand above Sissipas, and that's possibly it. Is that is that a fair fair assessment? Like shot, stroke by stroke? 
But against what, though? You know, it's like what. In terms of the, the optimal what? amount the shot has, I suppose. Like, you know, I'm, I'm not saying, I know obviously there's <laughs> the context of winning a tennis match doesn't matter, but just I'm, I'm just saying in terms of broad stroke, like the power generated, the quality, the consistency of the shot, I'd probably well, only I always, But that. I always say, I always say you should judge a player on their bottom, bottom and mid levels rather than their top levels. Well, that's true. So, yeah. you know, if we want to get into, you know, if you want to get into who has the best shots, then Juan Martin Del Potro is the best player of the last 20 years. It's like, you know, if that's what you want to do, you can catch one Martin Del Potro coming off against Novak Djokovic and going, oh, you know, he, he beat me with the few tools he had. <laughs> and then it'd be, it'd be right to say it, wouldn't it? Like, he didn't catch... Listen, right, nobody has ever brought more tools, in inverted commas, to the, the table than Roger Federer. Like, nobody. Mm. And you'd never catch Roger Federer coming off, losing to Andy Murray or... Nadal. Look how many how many matches has Roger Federer lost to Rafa Nadal, where all Rafa Nadal's done for the entire match is whip up cross-court forearms to his backhand. <laughs> and that's all he's done. And he's served every single serve to his backhand. And he's hit every single forehand to his backhand. And how many times have you heard Roger Federer come off and go, well, he beat him with the few tools that he had. <laughs> and then go and make a shit fucking elevator music song at the end of it. <laughs> <laughs> Just as defend Nadal, his forehand is a pretty good tool, to be fair. I wouldn't uh... Andre Rublev's backhand is. Like, it, it's, it's really, it really wound me up when I heard it. Like, it really tell. did. Like, really did. I thought it was really. If I, no, listen, on a serious note, right? If I coached him, I would be absolutely furious with yeah. that. I'd be absolutely furious because he's taken no responsibility for his own tennis at all. And, you know, I don't, I'm not saying he should have come out and given a generic, um, you know, he played, uh, Andre played really well and full credit to him. But, you know, come out and say, I was just crap. I was just crap. You know, I've, I've got to come out and say, look, what he should have said, he might go, I've got to win those matches. I've got to be winning those matches. Like, I'm, I've, you know, I've got the game. I'm losing too much. Me as Stefan Osicipas, I'm losing too many matches like that. And if I want to be world number one, if I want to be a multiple Grand Slam champion, I've got to be winning matches like that. You don't come off and go, he beat me with the few tools he had. And you sort of alluded to this earlier, Calvin, but there's there's a bit of a culture of excuses starting with Sissipas, isn't there? I mean, really, there has been over the last 18 months where, as you say, he's he's losing a lot of matches and always coming out and finding something to blame it on and it's rarely just him yeah. being like i wasn't good enough today and i th i you know i i think this is this is another part of the frustration of sissipas in the growth of his game that mentally the growth i think has gone quite significantly far backwards from when you think of that moment where he you know and i know sometimes we can get a bit stuck on those kind of big grand slam wins but when you think of that kind of mentally huge win at the australian open where he came from two sets down against nadal you thought this was going to be a guy who was mentally always there. And at that time of the year, he was playing brilliantly. And, you know, since that defeat to Djokovic at the French Open, just to find another signpost, it's felt like he's collapsed a little bit mentally to me. And that's shown in a lot of these press conferences that he's, I think he's struggling to grow up. And in, in many ways, it's kind of regressing. Um, so it hasn't wound me up quite as much as Calvin, because I love a good kind of post post mass prep post-match press conference row so I'm always supportive of 
someone going after their opponent, even if it is in the most petty way possible. But I think, you know, Calvin's right in terms of where he wants to be and should be and could be. Um, it, it's another kind of disappointing look over there rather than look at the problems in here. If we were to talk about, George, as you mentioned, the different shot-for-shot comparison, uh, we would definitely have to talk about mentality on the court. And I think that would be quite a close-run thing because it's probably both of their greatest weaknesses, <laughs> quite frankly. Um, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I mean, I've, I've seen Rublev break his own hand quite a few times just punching his strings. You know, the guy the guy can totally lose it. But, um, yeah, I mean... It, mentality is a tough one between them. I've seen them both be really good mentally where they kind of stick with it, play big matches quite well. I've seen them both be utterly awful. So I wouldn't want to call the lines in that one. Yeah, well, what I was going to say is uh, just to kind of move us on a little bit and talk a bit about Andre Rublev, the, the player. Um, he, he's obviously someone who's, I think he's worked really hard on trying to be a bit kinder to himself on the court. Um, and he, he put on his Instagram after the ATP Finals, he said, Torino, thank you so much for all your love and support during the week that I didn't deserve. What I felt this week with your kindness and support shows me that I can be a better person and a better player. It means more than a world to me. Thank you. Now, I usually ignore what players post on Instagram after matches because it's usually incredibly tedious. But I thought that was actually quite open and vulnerable and a little bit honest. And Calvin, I kind of wanted to ask you, actually, you know, you must, I'm sure you've worked with players who are incredibly mean to themselves on court and effing and blinding and the rest of it. I mean, presumably it's something that as a coach you look at and go, we probably need to try and tone this down a bit because it's actually not very helpful emotion. Um, yeah, w- would you like to know the funniest story of that kind of instance? Um, of, co- of course. <laughs> so I, I used to coach a lad who was he's very, he was very good. He was number one in the country at Wells or 14s, I can't remember. But he had a temper on him, like an absolute furious temper. So he once played a match at, um, and this is a bit, this slightly, I wouldn't say X-rated, but it's close to the boat in this one. Um, but, you know, this is what this podcast does. Um, <laughs> but um, uh, he once played a match in Preston where I took to watch him. And, and at Preston, if any, I don't know if any of our listeners have, have played at Preston South Ribble Tennis Centre, it's behind South Soundproof Glass. You can watch the whole match, but it's soundproof, so you can't, can't actually hear anything. So he played a match and he won the first set pretty comfortably. And then um, it was about four all in the second set. And he missed the shot and I could see he was going nuts, but couldn't exactly couldn't hear what he was saying. Couldn't hear what had happened. And he then proceeded to lose the, the next uh, eight points in a row and lost the set from that. And I thought we're in a world of trouble here. And then he lost the first two points of the tie break. It was the first 10 tie break. So it was two look down and tie break. He then went and won the next 10 and won the match. And I asked him, he came off and I said, what happened there? You lost like like eight, ten points in a row. And he goes, yeah, when I lost the first one, I accidentally rammed my racket into my privates and, and, and I, couldn't, I couldn't play for the next five minutes. So, so I guess and then it stopped hurting at, at two love down in the break. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, what I'm getting to is that, yeah, players do strange things uh, I think and yeah it can it can be a lot and, and I, I always say the same to players though in that kind of instance is that you've got to have balance in it uh, without sounding like Mr Miyagi 
Um, you've got to have balance um, in, like, if you want to criticize yourself, you've got to give yourself the credit for the good stuff as well. And that's what you find a lot of players don't do. They'll constantly focus on, on the bad stuff. And you're, so you're only getting that feedback from that. I will say this on Andre Rublev. I find him quite an interesting character in what I'm seeing in the last year or so. Um, just without, I, I've I've been around him for a few years. I don't know him at all, but just through juniors, I've coached a couple of juniors who were similar age to him, so I've seen him around tournaments. And he wasn't the most pleasant, um, let's put it that way. And but at the same time, I also think, and I don't mean this as any real insult to him i don't think he's ever been the most clever either i think he's sort of quite institutionalized and he was brought up in sort of quite a russian way um and i know some people who've said to me before and this was five or six years ago that he'd said some pretty poor things i don't want to go into it too much because i i didn't hear them but uh, some pretty bad things but what I'm hearing and what I'm seeing is that he is actually trying to right himself, I think, from that. And I think some of the comments he's made and some of the things he said, and I don't think it's for show. He always comes across as pretty genuine. Mm. So I think he might have known that, you know, earlier on in the year when he, when he, I don't know whether he was talking about the Ukraine stuff or not, but he was quite open about it. And I believed it where he said, look, I, I just don't know enough about it and I don't want to comment on it. And I thought where some people say, you know, use the old, I'm not a politician, I'm not getting into it. Is the way that he said it was that I just don't think he, you know, he was almost admitting I, I've not been educated enough on this and I need to find out. And I think from what I've seen, he has found out. And from what I hear, he's, he's trying to make himself a better person, like he said. Um, mm. And I think he deserves a lot of credit for that. Yeah, because it's it's all very well saying, and to, to bring us briefly back to football, I remember Wayne Hennessy getting caught out doing some silly hand gestures on camera and saying he didn't know anything about the Holocaust and he was desperate to learn about it. Um, I don't know whether any, anyone has bothered to check in with Wayne Hennessy and see how his um, postgraduate diploma in uh, you know Second World War history is going, but I, I, I may be giving him not enough credit, but I suspect very little has gone on. Whereas, as you say, Calvin, yes, Rublev gave that I don't know enough about it answer and at the time... I imagine, even if I didn't say it on here, I probably went, oh yeah, right. And as you say, he came out and he he was very publicly anti-war last week, which for a Russian lad is is just outrageously brave, George. Yeah, yeah I, I think in things like that, well, that we jump, and I think the thing, like I said, I don't really want to get into what, what I'd heard that he'd said, but I think it was very much like, it's almost like you don't really give him a free pass on it, but he'd been brought up, like I said, in a very, very Russian background and that kind of thing. And it's almost like not a decision he'd made. Yeah. It's like, this is the way that people around him will talk. And this is the opinions that he will have told. This is what you have. Mm. And since he's been out in the world a bit more and obviously seen what's happened in the last year, I think he's probably started to question that and think, wait a minute, was everything that I've been told right? Uh, I guess the old uh, Mitchell and Webb uh, sketch isn't oh, it? The, um, are we the baddies? <laughs> George, you were going to say? <laughs> I was going to say. I mean, just to just to kind of uh, suggest, Rude might uh, Rublev might be more intelligent than we think it is. If there was anything that was going to wind Sissabas up more than anything after that match was how disastrously he then went on to play against Rude. I think that really would have pissed Sissabas off watching that. Yeah, I, 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 like, what are you doing? I think what would piss. I think. I think. 
I think what would piss City Pass off more is that for City Pass with his cod philosophy and intelligence, like that Andre Rublev comes across as a much more intellectu- uh, intellectually advanced person than uh, Stefanos Tsitsipas does mm. now. You know, he's like, he speaks, he's compelling when he speaks. He's not making a, a desperate effort. You know, I think he said, you know, I, I do think when I, whenever I even talk Rublev, I, I, I sort of quite, in, quite like hearing him talk when he, it's quite funny earlier at the US Open, wasn't it, where he said that he's like, I don't know how all the other players in the dressing room get all these tickets to go and see things because every time I ask, they, they tell me there's none available. Yeah. And, I see, and I see Stefanos Tsitsipas and Alex Verev sitting front row at the Miami Heat. <laughs> that was actually very funny. He, he, yeah. Someone because he's a re, he is really into music. I mean, you would hate his music taste, Calvin. Uh, I'm he was, aware of it. Yeah, yeah. He was but, trying you know, to get. What, he's developed intellectually. You know, let's not write him off yet. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> you maybe send him a few playlists yeah. if you want. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, you said you hadn't heard the music he has made. He did make music when he was a younger lad, and I think it's close between him and Stefanos. But anyway, um, I'll, I'll put who's, the link. Who's the wor- who do we think? Who is the worst musician on the tennis tour? Is it, is it Paso or Shapovala? <laughs> I'll. I'll... I'm going to bat for Sissipas here in the sense that I found his music less <laughs> offensive. Like, it was kind of just lift music and very little like to do with Sissipas, whereas I think Shapovalov is... Shapovalov's a rapper, right? rapper. I, I, I don't know which is worse, but I think, like... I don't know which is worse, but Sissipas, I thought, was terrible, and Shapovalov's was hilariously terrible. <laughs> so I, I, don't, I, I don't know which one I would say is worse. Um... Yeah, I I just think if you're gonna rap and you're someone in the public eye, you've got like, you've got very limited like the the margin for error. It's a real low percentage shot going into the rap business. And so, so the wisest thing City Bass did was like have very little involvement in actually putting himself into the music. I think if he suddenly started like singing or like rapping or something, that is when it's like really a disaster. So I thought. That was a sign of musical intelligence to keep himself right out of the way. Well, also, I, I, we must be behind the curve on this because um, it, it, on the U, on his YouTube channel, it says this song was released in January, and this is the first I've heard of it. And I, the the video only had nine hundred and sixty views when I found <laughs> it on YouTube, and I can't quite believe that maybe it was like it was on private until now. I'm not sure. You sound quite shocked it didn't rush to the top of the charts. Or well, I just thought the me- the memes alone, you know, I, and I feel like Stefanos has probably got. I, d- I don't know. It, it, it's all a bit weird. Uh, maybe it's not even him. Who knows? Maybe it's like a different Stefanos. bloke called Stefanos as well. Yeah, yeah. It could totally be possible. I really haven't bothered checking. I just assumed it would be. <laughs> yeah, I've not it's, texted. It seems agent. some. It seems like something that Stefanos would put together. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, weird I, enough. I hate. I hate to like play the no smoke without fire like <laughs> card. You know, three thousand years of the British justice system comes down to this, but. Uh, no, I, I, it's not good. I'll put the link in the show notes. You can make your own mind up. I'll also put a link to Andre Rublev's um, teenage boy band, which which is pretty bad. Um, I've got a question from a listener, a Colin Neem, who's a, a regular listener. He dropped me a message on Instagram, uh, and it is a question for Calvin, as it almost always is. The the ones for me and George are much more sort of four letter wordy and, and rarely really questions, more statements. Um, <laughs> so good to get an actual question. Uh, Colin says, given that most doubles players at the upper end of the tour will have their own individual coaches, does this create conflict when it comes to deciding tactics for the team? Calvin, you're, you're with a very successful doubles pair at the moment. I know Julian has has his own coach, Barry. So so how does that kind of work when you're preparing for a match or, or 
even when you're like deciding wider things? Um, in ter- I mean, uh, Baz coaches Julian and I coach Henry, so we wouldn't um, necessarily get involved on anything technical with each player. Um, uh, I wouldn't with Julian for sure, because Baz has coached him since he was a kid. Uh, he's done an excellent job there, and they have a very special relationship. Um, um, and we both, in terms of tactics, we both work on the Louis Kaye double system, so there's no crossover there. We both we're both fully aligned with how doubles is played. Uh, mm. So in that respect, between me and Baz, it, it doesn't have any um, doesn't cause any ructions whatsoever. Um, in terms of other coaches, and I'm not aware that it ever has. Um, it's not the coaches. I know that, for example. Luke's partner this week, who's the other doubles player I coach, uh, Luke's partner wasn't keen on playing the double system. So that I wouldn't say caused ructions, it's caused sort of some confusion and you know, he didn't agree with it for one reason or another and wanted to play his own plays and that kind of thing. Um so it's more the players I would think. I don't think the coaches would ever get involved with it there, there isn't really a there isn't really an alternative system either you know and it would kind of like it would kind of be you know the the, the if you scouted opponents and saw what you wanted to do most coaches would see the same thing mm. so i wouldn't say ever that um that there's any ructions in terms of tactics i am always amazed that most pair, that a lot pair that not many pairs have the same coach it tends to always be individuals. I always wondered, like, wouldn't it, wouldn't it be sort of financially more viable to um, have a, a, you know, a coach? But then again, there, because of the way, as I alluded to last week, in terms of like how, you know, unless you're in the top 20 in the world, it's difficult to keep a partnership together as well. Yeah, it'd be pretty awkward when they split as well, because even at the top, they yeah. do split and swap quite often, don't they? And then it'd be a bit of a, like, kind of... Divorce. Yeah, well, my friend Craig Veal, who James has interviewed, he coached a pair and then they split and he ended up sticking with one of them. Yeah, it does make, it must make things hard. So I suppose it makes sense to be. And also, I suppose, I mean, it doesn't happen necessarily, but you're on tour together, the four of you. There's going to be weeks when, you know, player A doesn't really want to see his partner's coach because he's just like, I can't cope with that guy this week. Or like, I, I imagine them, you know, you need to spend time apart, right? You don't spend every waking minute to, together and your coach, I always, I mean, Calvin, you you may disagree here, but I always think that the best coaches are also quite good mates on tour. Um, it, that varies. You get coaches who don't socialise with uh, players and then you get players who, you know, you get coaches who do. Um, mm. And it can often vary from player to player. Some coaches will spend more time, um, you know, with other players than than they do with other uh, their players. I mean, I have known, I actually saying that, I have known there was a, a world number one pair who had the same coach, who was somebody who I know, uh, as a mate of mine, uh, and the two players didn't get on at all with each other. They just happened to be very good at doubles together, and he said that was a nightmare in terms <laughs> of that, because they basically, they, they got to a stage where they didn't even practice together either. <laughs> um, and I think it was at the US Open, one of them... Because the scheduling at Slams is always a bit weird. Like in the US Open, I think you can play on the first day and then not play until the Thursday. Mm. Uh, one of the players flew up to Boston to be as far away from his partner as he could be and just practiced on his own up there. Um, 
uh, very good. So yeah, but then you get other players. You know, like you get players who you get players who stick together for their entire career, like Cabal and Farah, uh, the mm. Colombians, have, mm. have only played together, and I think they probably will only ever play together. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it varies clearly. Um, let's move on to one final thing that I wanted to talk about, which uh, I think Georgie raised this week and, and I had actually come across it already at that point. Um, and I'll put a link to this in the show notes because it's definitely worth reading. Um, and I know that we won't be able to do it justice in just what we talk about. And it's also quite long and there's a lot of different moving parts to it. But um, Hannah Jane Parkinson, uh, who's a writer, uh, wrote, well, I don't use the word brave a lot because some things aren't brave, but this was spectacularly brave to write this incredibly long piece um, entitled Game Set Bankrupt, How an Addiction to Gambling on Tennis Lost Me £40,000. And she talked about how basically during lockdown um, her mental health got worse and she became a gambling addict. And, you know, using... So lots of the classic things that you hear about people who get addicted to gambling, you know, it was just a little bit to begin with... Other bits of her life had fallen apart a little bit and, and gambling offered her, you know, a bit of a sense of community, a sense of something to do, something to do when there wasn't a lot to do as well. Um, and she says, by the end, my entire existence revolved around it. Um, she was trying to self-exclude from various websites, but found herself lying to her family to use their debit cards or credit cards, although she says she was still transferring the money, so she was at least gambling her money, but... You know, she was finding ways around the the systems that stop you doing it, um, and she is now in recovery, thankfully. And clearly, writing this was a really big part of it. Um, George, give, give, just give me some of your reactions to reading it, because I mean, it, it's pretty, it's pretty startling, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's a there's a broad reaction to kind of the the gambling industry as a whole, and then there's the kind of more tennis specific folks. I mean. I will approach it with honesty. I, I like putting the odd bet on. I'm someone who puts one or two pounds on and I've never really <laughs> been consumed by it, but I find it can make the odd kind of football match particularly uh, interesting if I have no little interest. So, you know, I, I've never been someone who necessarily advocates the banning of gambling as a whole. I'm not anti-gambling per se. I do it myself. Um, what I am anti, and she touches on kind of in the broad industry, you know, there's there's parts where she kind of is able to justify to betting companies how you know say she's earning more than she is and not setting limits and i know she referenced a few kind of high profile legal cases around a nurse for example who i think she says was able to had a betting limit of 1300 a month and was earning 1400 a month you know that has to be tied to regulation within gambling i, I you know i don't want to get into kind of nanny state mode where we say you should be able to do this this, and this but it's important we do protect people and she speaks very kind of honestly and openly around kind of the most vulnerable people in society and brought out some great statistics on people with bipolar for example and and they kind of how likely they are to fall into that the other side that i think is probably more relevant to our podcast and is something i do feel very strongly about is sports themselves taking responsibility for gambling and you know there's there's some really interesting lines she said one of them um around tennis where she said one of the few things that's got me through this is laughing about how much it was tennis that i was betting on because it sounds so ridiculous but the other bit which really is the big problem for tennis is that she goes quite in depth into how many different things you can bet on in tennis and this is something that the tennis governing bodies did move to start changing a small while ago 
and it's unfortunately been undone as is always the case unfortunately in a lot of these sports um by money uh, you know there were big deals i think it was itf and sport radar um signed quite a big deal that kind of undid some what had been kind of previously half decent legislation i'm fairly sure some of the tours have signed fairly poor deals should we say and you know i'm not i'm not singling out tennis because other sports and governing bodies do do this but i think tennis has a a bit of a responsibility in itself to actually close off some of these windows and work closely with gambling um agencies or whatever to to stop it as she says you know she was just betting 500 quid on the next point time and time again you know that that's a really really dangerous cycle i've never been on board with that i think I personally have always been a bit of the case, you know, in-game betting to a degree is okay, but there has to be a fairly strict cap fairly early on. And I'd much, in an ideal world, I'd probably say pre-match betting is where you have to stick. And and then the other side is that I thought was quite interesting as well was how she spoke about how she was betting on certain players who are going through certain things through their lives. And, you know, there's this kind of gambler's idea where you're, you're feeling in control and then, you know, not realising Nicholas Kicker had kind of, you know, was struggling to support his son and you know took money off people because he was struggling to make ends meet and this this speaks to the wider point about the tennis ecosystem you know the tennis is so rife for corruption at the lower ends of the game because they're not paying people enough because it's not a kind of a solid enough sport in any way and there's a poor ecosystem um that it opens itself up to this so you know tennis's answer to stopping those kind of challenges about not paying people enough was to really restrict the gambling before and kind of tackle it on that side and they pulled back away from that and i think that's really poor and this article shone a light on that which i think um is a very positive thing in an otherwise fairly negative subject and one that doesn't reflect on tennis very well yeah not, not a lot to disagree with there george calvin i wanted to ask you about it because you know in the in the parts of the tour that you work in are often loss-making ventures and if they're not then they're often propped up by or underwritten by bookies you know that it's a part that's which to an extent exists because of gambling is that is that fair to say does that does that give you a different perspective on things yeah it's prevalent um I haven't seen any in the last year or so, but you used to get these people are hanging around tennis tournaments at futures tournaments, um, basically betting on points before because it takes like, you know, three seconds to go through the umpires. Uh, the, umpire, the, the whole betting system, in-play betting system works on the umpire's handheld computer where mm. they put the score in and then it goes through and you get these people who are watching like climbing trees near the tennis clubs and betting on it just to get the bet in three seconds before it actually gets in play and that kind of thing. So you see them. There's still a major problem with gamblers and I guess it's kids really just abusing, foully abusing players. Um, both of my players have had some horrendous messages this year. Uh, from it, um, from that kind of thing. And it's just, you know, that's just sort of pathetic. Um, and as George alludes to, you know, it's like I'm, I've never, you know, you can't justify match fixing at all um, through betting. And that that's where, what, what the root of it is. But A, your players properly. If you know that's at least a limit. I'm not saying, you know, there's an argument, there's a solid argument that if it's human nature, people will be greedy and people people will do it anyway and I can completely see that but pay your players you know it's like you can't you know the, the flights for example you know there's some guys going to be getting to Australia now if you squeezed in if you squeezed in the tournament and say you're 
or, or if you're going for qualies, you're 250 in the world. The flights to Australia at the minute are two and a half thousand pounds. Hmm. You know, that's, and look at, look at what the prize money is. You know, it's like, you've got to pay your play. If you want them to travel, you want them to pay. You've got to play, pay your players. Yeah, hmm. I keep saying it all the time. You can't just have 120 players making money from a sport that claims to be one of the elite sports and a truly international sport. Look at any other sport like that. How many, you know, what the the four hundredth best footballer in the world will be a millionaire. The four hundredth best basketball player will be a millionaire. Four hundredth best tennis player isn't breaking even. And that you know we, we've touched on this in previous weeks. Every single aspect of tennis you look at where there is problems ultimately comes back to this massive ecosystem problem and the structural problems in the game and i think unless you tackle it holistically really kind of taking every issue whether it be gambling whether it be environmental whether it just generally being players breaking even or not whether it being rest you know there there are so many big issues that really require some serious people coming together at the top of the game you know how many times we heard over the years it'd be lovely if the you know the seven pillars of tennis itf slams tours all came together and started working together there are serious serious problems that require those people to actually take a look at the game as a whole and deliver serious change and unfortunately that's not come close to happening for a long time yeah loads to talk about there and we definitely could do lots more on gambling and maybe during the off season we'll get a chance to talk about more in depth in gambling and tennis do read the article it's in the show notes thank you so much for listening uh, please do leave us a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts and most importantly do come back next week Sports Social Podcast Network